Welcome back to At The Buzzer. I'm your host, Dean McCollum, joined along with my co-host, Tyler Fertel, Campbell Klein, and Andrew Loveliner, and we have a very special episode for you guys today. We will be discussing the NBA playoffs consisting of the first round of the playoffs and the second round of the playoffs. So without further ado, let's get started. So we're going to start off in the Western Conference with the one-seeded Lakers versus the eight-seeded Blazers. As we know, the Lakers won the series 4-1. What did you guys think about this series, and did you like anything specific that you saw from either of these teams? Um, so going into the series, well, people thought that the Trailblazers were going to be able to put up a fight that they could potentially even win the series because Dame was playing out of his mind in the bubble and he was hitting buzzer beaters, hitting crazy shots. And he did that in the first couple games against the Lakers. They actually won the first game of the series, but then he got injured later. And I feel like from there on, people were like, yeah, they got no chance. But um, this series at the beginning, it was interesting because the Lakers weren't playing their best basketball and the Blazers were coming in off of a winning record in the bubble, in the regular season of the bubble, and the Lakers were not because, I mean, yeah, they didn't play like they usually play with AD and LeBron playing almost the whole game. So, yeah, this series was definitely interesting, even though the Lakers won in five games because Damon Lillard and CJ McCollum are a good backcourt duo. People thought that they could maybe score a bunch of points against the Lakers uh, guards and Contavious, Kyle Pope, Rajon Rondo was injured, and Danny Green against the Lakers front court with AD and LeBron. So I thought this was an interesting series, but obviously the Lakers came out as the better team. And as we all know, they are facing the Heat currently in the NBA Finals right now. Another interesting storyline from this series is uh, Yusuf Nurkic came back from injury, I think, with like under 10 games left in the regular season. So that made it super interesting because it's a matchup that the Lakers hadn't faced all year. So as a Laker fan, after game one, I was a little scared. As a a lot of you probably remember, the Lakers shot terribly in game one. It was not looking good for them. There were a lot of ESPN reports coming out. Can the Lakers win this series? And now, as Tyler said, they've gone to the finals. Anyone want to add on to that? Yeah, something I would like to point out about that Portland LA series is I think people realize that uh, Carmelo Anthony wasn't actually a waste of a contract. He kind of proved himself that he can still be a NBA player and be a starter on a team that had a chance. I mean, after that game one, it looked like they had a chance to upset the Lakers. But obviously, as Tyler said, the injuries didn't make that happen. Um, But Melo proved that he's worth probably more than what he's paid. And I think this offseason, whether it's Portland or somewhere else, a team will give him uh, more money than what he signed for in that short not very expensive deal with Portland because he proved that he can still score the basketball and he was diving on the floor for loose balls and boxing out and trying to rebound and he was going up against probably the best big man he was guarding Anthony Davis probably the best big man in the league so it was definitely a tough matchup yeah I agree with Andrew uh Mello's as we all know that he's a free agent this upcoming offseason I'm sure he'll get paid a lot more money than he's getting paid right now and I also wanted to note I think I said in the unpopular opinions that Hassan Whiteside's just not going to put up as much production as he did this season. And that's exactly what we saw in the bubble. Like, you can't lie. We saw Yusuf Nurkic come in. He took his starting role right off the bat. He was fully healthy. And he put up way more production, way better stats, and he impacted his team way more than Hassan Whiteside did in the regular season. So I do expect uh, Yusuf Nurkic to just get more minutes than Hassan. And the Portland Trailblazers, it's now unlikely that they will re-sign Hassan Whiteside now that their uh, starting young center, Yusuf Nurkic, is back. So... And now talking about the actual series, I was a bit scared for the Lakers after they lost that game one. But as I've uh, noticed throughout the playoffs, now that we're filming this after game one of the NBA finals, 
um, the Lakers have just been able to bounce back if they lost a game. And they've only lost three as of Friday, October 2nd. So the Lakers have always been able to bounce back. So I've noticed that. And that's good for them that they've always been able to do that and get back on track if they lose a game. Yeah, the Lakers have definitely shown that they're persistent in the playoffs. Like you said, they in the first three rounds going into the NBA Finals, they've only lost three games. They won each series in five. So, yeah, but like you're saying, the Trailblazers offseason is going to be very interesting because are they going to re-sign Hassan Whiteside? What are they going to do with Carmelo Anthony? So they have a lot of options for what they can do. They they still have CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard and I think Yusuf Nurkic. So they have their core there. Let's just see what they can do. Yeah, so now we're going to move on to the number one seed versus the number eight seed in the Eastern Conference. So that matchup was between the Milwaukee Bucks and the Orlando Magic, and the Bucks won the series 4-1. So I'm going to start on this one, then we can go to Andrew. So obviously, most people know that the Magic won game one, and I was making a joke with a few of you guys saying that the Magic were going to win the series, even though it was just a joke. Um, the Bucks completely dominated from then on out. They knew that they weren't going to let up any easy games. I mean, they're on pace to win 70 games this season. So if the season didn't get cut short and the Bucks knew Giannis knew that he had to show up because he obviously didn't in game one where they just got smothered and the Bucks bounced back for one easy series should have been a sweep. But any of you guys have any more comments on the series? Uh, yeah, I'll keep it quick because, as Dean said, this series should have been a sweep. Um, but one thing I noticed during this series, which is sort of foreshadowing the second round matchup versus the Heat, the Bucks as a team just didn't look the same. I'm pretty sure Giannis was putting up like 30 and 15 a game in that uh, in that series. But Chris Middleton was doing nothing. The rest of their team was doing nothing. Their bench wasn't putting up numbers. So that that sort of foreshadows some bad stuff in the future for uh, the Bucks. Yeah, I'd just like to quickly talk about what Campbell said. Um, definitely losing that game one. I didn't think it was that big of a deal. Um, I thought the Bucks would be able to bounce back, but Giannis kind of carried them through that series. I mean, Middleton and Bledsoe and Brooke Lopez all didn't play up to their standards. They didn't play like the best team in the NBA, which they were. They had the best record throughout the season, uh, including the restart in the bubble. And as Campbell said, that would foreshadow some problems in the second round, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, like you're saying, Chris Middleton was underwhelming in this series like he was uh, in the regular season. He was an all-star, but I don't know if we can say that he deserved to be one. But you know who did uh, show that they deserved to be one in the series? Nikola Vucevic. He helped that Magic team win that first game, and he was by far their best scorer uh, in the series. Although they weren't very good and they lost 4-1, he's still shown that he's a what a good center in this NBA and that he can, he can lead a team potentially if they get more all around players behind him. I'd like to quickly note something. They didn't have their best uh, defender, young guy, Jonathan Isaac towards ACL. Hopefully he can get back healthy soon. Now we're going to move back to the West where we had the two seated Clippers beating the seven seated Dallas Mavericks, obviously led by Luka Doncic. The Clippers won this series four to two. Okay, so uh, I think most of us knew the Clippers were gonna, were going to come out of this series. I personally thought it was going to be in four or five games. It ended up being in six. And as much as I want to talk about the Clippers, I think the main storyline from this series is Luka Doncic putting up absolutely absurd numbers day in and day out. He was putting up, I think, 31, almost a triple-double. And I think the main thing is that game four, overtime game winner, that was a truly incredible shot. Uh, do you guys want to talk about what were you, what you were feeling when Luca hit that shot to tie it up? Yeah, 
that shot wasn't to tie it up. That was a game winner, a ridiculous shot in overtime against the Clippers to keep them in the series. I mean, like we said, Luka Doncic showed in this series that he is one of the best players in the NBA. He was a starter in the All-Star game, and he, as he showed here, he deserves to be. I think that him and Porzingis definitely have something special. I think that next year, if they get better supporting cast, they can definitely make a run in the playoffs, even in a tough Western Conference. I think him and James Harden are now going to battle for the best shooting guard spot in the NBA. I mean, I think he can deserve to be in that race. He is so good. He's a great all-around player. He might want to get better, a little better on defense, so he can be a great defender along with this team so they don't give up as many points. But he is a great player, and he showed it in this bubble. Tyler, I agree with you saying that Luka Doncic is, if not the best, one of the best shooting guards uh, or even just guards in the NBA. I mean, he was all NBA first team this year. So that kind of uh, also shows why he took a huge leap this year. Um, He could have won most improved uh, just because he just got even better, which people didn't think was possible in someone's second year. And I think that Luka and Porzingis, who was injured for the last couple games of that Clippers series, uh, which maybe is a reason why the Mavs didn't come out on top. But Luka and Porzingis are going to be a great duo for years to come. They're going to be in the playoffs every year. I think if they can get a better supporting cast around Luka and Porzingis and maybe even another all-star, like maybe a center that can control the paint or an, oh, another wing player that can create his own shot, that might help them uh, win a championship eventually. But I think that with Luka Doncic, they definitely have a chance to win a championship in the coming years. Yeah, you guys didn't really mention it, but Andrew mentioned it a little, that Christoph Sporzingis, I think he was wrongfully ejected in game one. He didn't have any bad acts for him to get enough for him to get ejected. And he was also injured for almost the entire series. So pretty much it was just Luka putting on a backpack and just trying to carry his team to the win. So I think the Mavericks definitely potentially could have won that series. And what Andrew was saying about the center who could hold down the paint, in the future for the Mavericks, if they were capable enough to get that, uh, to get a center like that. I think someone like Rudy Gobert would be a perfect fit for the Mavericks. I know it's always in rumors and stuff, but someone like a Rudy Gobert. And like you said, Tyler, they have to have a better supporting cast. All they had was shooters. They didn't have much defense. It was all offense, no defense. So it'll be super exciting to see in the years to come, what the Mavericks will be able to put together. Cause they're going to be a higher and higher seed every single year. So it'll be super exciting to see what they can do. Now we're going to move back to the East, the two seed Raptors versus the seven seed Nets. Do you guys have anything to say on this? It was a sweep. The Raptors won 4-0. Let's keep this one short. Like you said, Dean, this, it was a sweep. It wasn't, it wasn't very close. The Nets couldn't put up too good of a fight here. I mean, like we saw, like half of their team wasn't in the bubble. Kyrie, KD were hurt. Um, Dinwiddie had Corona. And I mean, just uh, DeAndre Jordan didn't play. So like, that's basically like going to be their whole starting lineup other than someone who played really well in the bubble, Karis LeVert. Yeah, uh, talking about Karis LeVert, obviously he he sort of broke out in the bubble in the regular season games. And, and even in the playoffs, he had some good games in the playoffs versus the Raptors. We already knew he was a great player, and I'm sure he'll get that starting shooting guard spot next year when their team is fully healthy. It was pretty much only Karis LeVert and Jared Allen. They couldn't do much versus the defending champs. So yeah, it was a sweep. There's nothing else to it. Yeah, I agree with Dean that um, Karis LeVert definitely showed out. And a couple of those games were blowouts, but a couple of them were close. Uh, Single-digit victories for the Raptors. So the Nets had a chance, but Karis LeVert, I don't think he's taking the steps to be a closer yet. And they don't really have anyone to take that final shot, especially with KD, Kyrie, and even Dinwiddie, who could possibly make that shot. They were all out. And I think that also another player that's kind of under the radar, but that's also free agency here is Joe Harris. And he was 
he showed that he's more than just a spot-up shooter. He was playing great defense. He was rebounding the ball, and he was uh, making plays for his teammates, You know, getting into the paint, driving, kicking. So I think it's important that the Nets sign him because I think he'd be a good piece, especially alongside KD and Kyrie uh, when they come back next season. You guys pretty much covered it. The better team came out on top in this series. Um, something a little bit unrelated, but I wanted to ask you guys. So in, uh, I think, Kevin Durant's podcast yesterday, Kyrie Irving said that Kevin Durant, Kyrie himself, and Steve Nash were going to be like co-coaching the team, which doesn't really sound great. If I were coach Steve Nash, I would not feel good about that. How do you guys feel about this? And do you think their team is going to work out as both of those players definitely want to be superstars on their team? Um, I mean, Steve Nash is a rookie coach. He has no coaching experience. So, I mean, I'd understand that Steve Nash would be okay with it since he's playing with two of our gener- uh, two of our decade's best talents in Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, arguably the best score of all time. So I'm sure Steve Nash would be okay with it since he knows that they can take the reins and lead the team and co-coach the team. I think that um, you can compare Steve Nash's coaching style to something similar that like Tyron Lue was when he was coaching the Cavs, more of like a player's coach, you know, like players first. And I think when you have superstars like LeBron James and Kyrie that Ty Lue had, and now Steve Nash has Kyrie and KD, I think that, you know, they have the biggest opinion on the team because they're the superstars. So a lot of times they know what's best because they're on the floor. But Steve Nash definitely brings a great insight to the game as he was probably one of the smartest players to ever play the game. So I think that he'll probably be a good fit with those guys and a good players coach to, and he'll definitely be involved a lot with those guys. But yes, Katie and Kyrie, since they're the superstars, they definitely have a lot to say in what goes on there. Now we are going to move back to the West where the three-seeded Nuggets took on the 60 to Jazz. This was arguably the best first-round series, in my opinion, at least. And the Nuggets came out on top, winning 4-3. to three. Coming back down 3-1, to one, what are your guys' thoughts and opinions on the series? This is a great series. Yeah, uh, you said it's arguably the best series of the first round. It was the best series of the first round. I mean, Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray were just going at it. They both had 50 points game in this series and put up crazy numbers throughout all the games. The Nuggets played really well in the final games, three games of this series, because they were down 3-1. They came back 4-3, as we saw. Don Mitchell was super pissed after the game, saying that they should have won. I mean, they had so many chances to win. Mike Conley missed that buzzer beater shot at the end of game seven that would have sent them to the next round. But as we saw, the Nuggets won the series and then found a way to win the next two that we will cover later in this podcast. But uh, yeah, this series, as we were saying, it was the battle of point guards and centers with, I think you consider Donovan Mitchell a point guard. I mean, he was playing as the Jazz point guard. So it's Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert versus Jamal Murray and uh, Nikola Jokic. So yeah, this was a great series and it was fun to watch. Yeah, this was an amazing series to watch. We obviously saw two young guards break out in Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell. That's going to be the future of the NBA. They're all they're already really close friends, and I'm sure we'll see a bunch of great matchups between them in the near future. I really like what I saw from Jamal Murray. Really like what I saw from Donovan Mitchell. And going back to the Mike Conley uh, thing you said earlier about him taking the last shot and missing it, uh, I, I sort of did a little analyzing on that last play because I just wanted to see if there was any other better possible solution. But I think that Mike Conley took the best shot they could have had to win that because if he kicked it out to Donovan Mitchell, it was wide open, not enough time. So uh, no hit on Mike Conley there. He he did all he could. Yeah, Dean, I mean, that shot was in and out. So if your shot goes in and out, then it's definitely has a great chance of going in. It wasn't a bad shot by Mike Conley. Um, I think that 
Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray broke out, and this would, I mean, Jamal Murray broke out in several other series this playoffs uh, later on, but he definitely showed a glimpse of what he can be. Same thing with Donovan Mitchell. They both showed that they're superstars in the NBA because they were playing like it, both scoring 50 points in multiple games. Um, I just think that what it came down to was that uh, Jokic outplayed Gobert, especially offensively. Um, Jokic, I think he's the best scoring center in the league based on how he can hit the three and space the four, but also post up. And he's the best passing big man maybe of all time, but for sure right now in the league. So I think that that duo was just a little better, but it was like Tyler said, it was the most exciting series to just see those guys go back and forth. And yeah, it was a great series and many more to come. Uh, Yeah. As Andrew said, I think we could definitely see this playoff matchup for years and years to come. One main thing that was really interesting was just the battle between Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray. Donovan Mitchell with two 50-point games in a playoff series, that's absolutely absurd. Jamal Murray and uh, Nikola Jokic both carrying their teams once they went down 3-1. And as you said, there, weren't, there, was, a, there was a very close game uh, in the middle of the series, I think game three or four, but they really saved the best game for last in that game seven, really a defensive-minded game. I think each team was held to under 90 points, so... Super fun to watch. Great series. All right. Now we will move back to the East where the Celtics, the three seed, uh, beat the Philadelphia 76ers in a sweep. We all know Ben Simmons was not playing in this entire series. So the 76ers really didn't have a chance uh, from the beginning. So that's all I have to say on it. Anyone else have anything to say? Yeah, um, I think without Ben Simmons, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. They weren't going to win that series because I think he was the guy that would have put on Jason Tatum, who played, who was the best player in that series. He played the best. I know he averaged high 20s in points. And the whole Celtics team, it was just a team effort. Um, Gordon Hayward did go down, however, uh, in that first game, but he eventually came back later in the playoffs, which we can talk about more later. But I think it was just, I mean, it was a quick sweep. Some of the games were closer than others, but I think... The reason why Philadelphia didn't win is mainly their problem of outside shooting, which they had pretty much the entire season. And the fact that Al Horford and Joel Embiid, for whatever reason, on paper, look like a great fit. But when they play, it's not it's a terrible fit. It's hard for them to be on the floor together. And the Sixers just signed uh, Doc Rivers as their new head coach. So we'll see what he can do with Simmons and Embiid. But yeah, the Sixers definitely struggled in the playoffs. I'm personally a little bit disappointed in the 76ers. I didn't expect them to come out on top in this series, but I did expect them to win a game or two, and they definitely had their chances. There were multiple, two if not three games, where the Celtics won in single-digit games. Celtics really an awesome team effort. This team is going to be good for a really long time. Jason Tatum, Kemba Walker, and Jalen Brown, I believe all averaged upwards of 20 points, which is really, really incredible. Well, you can't really blame the 76ers as they're not as good coach. Obviously, Brett Brown is a way worse coach than Brad Stevens, as we all know. The only advantage they have is Joel Embiid over Daniel Tyson and his canter. So you can't really blame them for not even winning a game because they just couldn't close out the game because Joel Embiid was their only option. So they couldn't really do anything. So I don't really blame the Sixers for getting swept. They really didn't. They didn't have their second best player and arguably their best defender on the team. So. I don't think you can really blame them. Yeah, the like we've said, the Sixers didn't put up a fight in this series. They think they resolved their uh, conflicts by firing Brett Brown and hiring Doc Rivers, but we'll see what they uh, do in the offseason because they have Al Horford on a big contract. There's been rumors that they might try to trade for uh, King shooting guard 
Buddy Heald, who would give them another option for shooting because that's probably their main priority this offseason. They need shooting. So with because they lost J.J. Redick last year, he was their main product of shooting. So they didn't have that shooting guard this year that they could rely on making a three-point jumper um, consistently. So, yeah, I think that they have – they need to do a lot this offseason if they want to be contenders. And they're one of the most talented teams in the NBA. So – they ha- they'll always have the chance with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons on their team. I just think they need a couple more pieces to round up their squad. Yeah, the Sixers have two of the top five worst contracts in the NBA and uh, Tobias Harris's in- extremely huge contract in Al Horford's, who you just mentioned. Now we're going to move back to the Western Conference for the last first-round matchup between the Houston Rockets and the Oklahoma City Thunder. The Rockets ended up winning four to three in game seven, a crazy game seven. What do you guys have to say about this crazy series? For this series, it was definitely an exciting series. Most people did not expect it to go to seven games. I didn't think it would go past six games. I mean, with James Harden and Russell Westbrook, you would expect the Rockets to be able to beat the Thunder uh, a little more easily than in seven games. I think that Chris Paul really showed his leadership. And I mean, some people forgot that Chris Paul's an all-star in this league. People were questioning why he was an all-star this year, but he really led that team to the five seed. And he got great contributions from Danilo Gallinari and Shigellis Alexander and uh, Lou Dort, who was their uh, draft pick uh, this past year. He was definitely a surprise guarding. I mean, he gave Harden some real trouble on the defensive end. James Harden had some games where he just could not score. He could not get by uh, Lou Dort. And Russell Westbrook also, he he didn't really shoot well. He didn't play his best series. But eventually the Rockets uh, came up on top. And I think that if you're a Thunder fan, you definitely have a lot to be proud of in that team. Uh, one guy that really didn't play well was Steven Adams. But you can't get mad at him because he was forced to guard uh, P.J. Tucker on the perimeter of the whole game. So he wasn't really a factor in the interior because I think he spent all of his energy and stamina trying to play on the perimeter against guys like uh, Tucker and Covington. But it was a great fight from the Thunder, and they have a lot going for them in the future, especially with those boatload of first-round picks they have. The Thunder have a lot to look forward to in the future. They got Shagels, Alexander, Dennis Schroeder, and a couple other players and a bunch of first-round draft picks that they got with trades from the Clippers and the Nuggets. So, yeah, this team... With Chris Paul, who could potentially get traded if they're trying to get some more young talent for the future, that can be very interesting. I mean, but this Rockets team, we'll see if they continue to play small ball into next season. James Harden, Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook was not healthy at the beginning of the series. That's why people thought OKC could potentially win this series, me included. I thought that OKC could potentially win this series in six or seven games, which they came close to, but weren't able to pull it out. But uh, yeah, this Rockets team, maybe they'll sign a center. During the offseason, I think that would be a good idea. I don't know if small ball works in the playoffs because teams end up knowing how to guard it. But I think that, yeah, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, probably the best backcourt duo in the league, possibly. I mean, there's Steph Curry and Klay Thompson going to next year, too. So this series was really interesting, and I think that these two teams are both going to be great next year, too. I loved what I saw from Chris Paul. He's proved he proved during the series, especially obviously he was an all-star. I think he was all NBA this year that he's still a very valuable piece on any NBA team. He can go to, he's always the best leader on the court. And I think that the thunder could trade him for more draft capital. And maybe the thunder even take a step back next year. There've been rumors since they parted ways with their coach, Billy Donovan, that they could be maybe tanking for a really good draft pick next year. Cade Cunningham, Oklahoma City, hometown, that could be a great fit for 
Cade Cunningham there. It's a stacked draft class. So I think OKC might even take a step back next year, but we'll have to see who they hire and what their front office plans are for next year. Now we're going to move on to our final first round series of this playoffs. Back in the East, the four-seeded Pacers versus the five-seeded Heat. The Heat absolutely obliterated the Pacers. Um, I think this was the most disappointing first round matchup. I mean, you could say the Sixers too, but I thought the Pacers were going to put up a good fight, like at least two games maybe, but the Heat absolutely obliterated them. TJ Warren was exploited by Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo was too much to handle. Jimmy Butler was playing great defense and he was playing great offense and the Heat just caught fire too quickly, hence their name, and they just completely destroyed the Pacers. Yeah, this series was a... It was done pretty quickly. I mean, the Heat, as we see right now, are in the NBA Finals against the Lakers. They're currently losing 1-0 in a game that was not close by any margin. But um, this series was not close whatsoever. The Heat won every single game by a wide margin. The Pacers were without their best player in DeMontis Sabonis. And TJ Warren wasn't the player he was at the beginning of the bubble when he put up 50-point games and then 30s repeatedly. So, uh, I mean, the Pacers were underwhelming in this postseason. They fired their coach and Nate McMillan. And I don't know, but they, they may be looking for a new coach, maybe a Mike D'Antoni. Or, and they might try to trade Victor Oladipo, who was also very injury prone and underwhelming too in this postseason in the bubble. So they might have some rebuilding to do around DeMontis Sabonis. He is a very good player and all-star for years to come. So this Heat team was way too much for this Pacers team, as we saw as they swept the Pacers. Yeah, I mean, the Heat really took control uh, defensively, especially guarding TJ Warren, who seemed to be unstoppable in the regular season bubble restart. But then all of a sudden in the playoffs, Jimmy Butler and the Heat shut him down. And that goes to show about their team defense. And I'll definitely be talking about their team defense uh, later on in another second round series. But as for their offense, they just shot the lights out of the ball. I mean, I'm looking at the stats here. Goran Dragic shot 40% from three. Jimmy Butler looks like he shot 57% from three. Duncan Robinson, 45. I know Jimmy Butler doesn't take uh, many threes. Uh, Andre Iguodala shot 42% from three. So I think that the outside shooting for the Heat kind of carried them through the series. And I mean, it's not just like one guy. Like most teams you see that make it to the NBA uh, finals like the Heat did. Usually they have some superstars like a LeBron James or an Anthony Davis to lead them there. But they got a guy in Jimmy Butler who's just been known as a regular all-star his whole career. And Bam Adebayo, who's a first-year uh, all-star. So I think that it was really collective effort by the Heat as, I mean, they have five players that averaged more than 10 points in this series and for the whole playoffs so far. So, I mean, yeah, this Heat team, it was really a really fun team to watch. And I thought it would be a better series, but the Pacers just didn't come to play. Uh, Yeah, I'll keep it short. I thought this was going to be a much better series. I had this series going to either six or seven games. And now looking back on that, that looks absolutely ridiculous. The Heat clearly played better, had a better roster. So now that we've talked about all the first round matchups of the playoffs, we're going to go on to the second round. And we're going to start off again in the Western Conference. So we have the number one Lakers versus the number five Rockets. So the Lakers ended up winning the series Four games to one in five games. The Rockets won game one. The Lakers won four straight. What are you guys' thoughts on this one? So, yeah, this series, sort of like the Blazers won. The Rockets won the first game. They played well. The Lakers didn't shoot well. The Rockets shot well. But in the next four games, the Lakers were just too much for the Rockets. Um, 
the Lakers were able to guard the Rockets' small ball lineup and were able to hit threes, and AD and LeBron started to take over. And yeah, the Rockets didn't have any answer for that because AD would be guarding by would be guarded by PJ Tucker or Robert Covington, who are three and six inches shorter than him. So yeah. And when we all and uh when the Lakers also played Dwight and JaVale in the lineup, which they rarely did because they were outmatched and they couldn't get to the perimeter as quickly. But when they did, the Rockets also had no answer for them. Yeah, as Tyler was saying, uh in game one, the Lakers really didn't have any response to James Harden. It was not looking great for the Lakers after that game one. But then the Lakers just really turned it around. Anthony Davis and LeBron James just switched nights going crazy. The Rockets did not have a stop for our offense. Kuzma played a pretty solid series. Just a good all-around basketball by the Lakers. And as Tyler did say, good rest for the Lakers' big men. Yeah, I think the key for the Lakers, that uh, how they won the series, they weren't able to contain James Harden in game one. They shot poorly from the three, and the Rockets thrived off their three-pointers. They were able to adjust very well to the Rockets' offense and absolutely destroyed them on the uh, when the Rockets were on defense. So the Rockets could not contain Anthony Davis after game one because Anthony Davis had a sluggish start, and um, the Rockets just couldn't do anything to do it, and this series was... Nothing but it, it, it could have been a sweep, to be honest. The Lakers just didn't have an, uh, a good game one. So Yeah, like you're saying, a big key to the series um, in the change of power after game one. Russell Westbrook played relatively well in that game one. He shot relatively well. He went to the lane at his will. And then the rest of the games, not only him, but that whole team shot poorly, especially Russell Westbrook. The Lakers started to leave him wide open at the key and at the top of the three-point line, and he would brick shots repeatedly. So once the Lakers realized that Russell Westbrook isn't a good shooter unless he's like catching fire, which is very rarely, then there's no you don't need to guard him on the perimeter. So personally, I think that was the kryptonite to the Rockets' small ball lineup because their starting point guard couldn't shoot the basketball. Yeah, you guys kind of said it all. I don't really need to say much more. The AD and LeBron were just too much and. The bench guys for the Lakers, too, especially like Rondo and Danny Green and KCP, they all stepped up big time that series. And that was a pretty easy series for the Lakers overall outside of game one. And it just goes to show like uh, Mike D'Antoni got fired after the game. So uh, after the series, sorry. Um, So that just goes to show the Lakers were able to take care of business and clean up pretty fast. So now we're going to move on to the Eastern Conference. Uh, This will be the first second round matchup we will discuss for the East. It was between the one-seeded Bucks versus the five-seeded Heat, where the five-seeded Heat came up with a huge upset on the Bucks, beating them 4-1, beating them in fashionable time in five games. Um, Tyler and Andrew, you guys both predicted this in one of our earlier podcasts. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts on this since you guys predicted this correctly? So uh, as me and Tyler predicted, the Heat did beat the Bucks. I predicted to be a more competitive series when really I think the Heat should have ended up sweeping them. The Bucks got kind of lucky. Uh, in that game four, Chris Middleton hit a big shot. Uh, that was probably his best game of the series. But overall, Middleton did not play the way the Bucks needed him to, and neither did Giannis. Uh, he went up against that wall of Jimmy Butler, Jay Crowder, Andre Iguodala, Bam Adebayo, those guys, all great defenders on the perimeter and in the interior. And the Heat outside shooting was really on display between Goran Dragic and Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero. They all had great contributions, and the Heat just as a whole – 
they just manhandled the Bucks offensively and defensively. They won the rebound battle despite being the much smaller team, and they got on transition, and the Heat were the best three-point shooting team uh, during the regular season, and they definitely showed that off in this series. Yeah, this series was not fun to watch for Bucks fans. I mean, as a Laker fan, it was kind of funny seeing the number one seed in the other conference get destroyed, but uh, the Heat had an answer for Milwaukee, especially Giannis. They had an answer for Giannis, and the and the Bucks did not know what to do. The Bucks' surrounding cast was not good enough to make up for the shots Giannis wasn't getting because Jimmy Butler, Jay Crowder, and Bam Adebayo were really good at guarding him. They were preventing him from going to the paint at his will, and he he's not good of an good enough of a shooter to make threes each and every shot. So he would have to give the ball to players like Chris Milton and Eric Bledsoe and George Hale and Brooke Lopez, who couldn't make shots consistently and weren't good enough to get through this Heat team. And like you said, players like Tyree Harrow, Duncan Robinson, Goran Dragic, they were good enough supporting cast, and they were better than the Bucks supporting cast. And Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo were able to do more than Giannis and Chris Middleton. And when Giannis got hurt, Chris Middleton finally decided to step up. Why couldn't he do that for the whole series? I don't know if he can be that second guy on a contending team. So I don't know. I think the Bucks' identity was really shown here, shown that they do need more to make a championship run. And we'll see what they do next year. But I think that they need to get one or two good three-point shooters if they want to contend more. I mean, they have Chris Middleton, but he didn't show that he can shoot consistently well here. George Hill and Eric Bledsoe are relatively good shooters, but I don't know. They might need a guy maybe. I don't think they can get him, but maybe like J.J. Redick or someone like that. But uh, yeah. Um, like Andrew said, Giannis is obviously pretty much uncontainable in the in today's NBA, but the Heat were able to minimize Giannis's production, which they did very well. So I'm going to give Andrew a little credit for saying that because once they minimized Giannis's pr- uh, production in this series, the Bucks couldn't do anything. Chris Middleton was playing absolutely terribly. Same with Eric Bledsoe. Eric Bledsoe was a huge disappointment in the big moments. And like you said, Tyler, Brooke Lopez, George Hill, Dante DiVincenzo, all the guys who've been playing well all season long, just froze and couldn't do a thing. So when the Miami Heat were able to throw like three different guys at Giannis, the Bucs couldn't back Giannis up, which is why like Chris Middleton, everyone's saying that he's never going to be able to be good enough to be that second option on a championship team because we just saw that series unfold. And Chris Middleton, like you said, he stepped up in the uh, in the game that Giannis was injured. And I want to go back to saying how Giannis uh, sat out those last two games, I believe. It was the last two games. I mean, Giannis should have played those games. It's not like he was so hurt in a way that he just couldn't play. Like, I think that's sort of a problem in today's NBA, how, like, if a team is down, like, two, like, 3-1, well, the Bucks were down 3-0, and Giannis decided to sit out the rest of the series. Like someone like Damian Lillard, I know he like dislocated his finger and had and tweaked his knee or something, but Giannis should have played those last two games. I'm not going to say anything about Giannis, but I also believe that the Bucks, like you said, they need to get some shooters. I think they need to get a facilitator other than Eric Bledsoe, who is definitely not one. I think that they should definitely try and uh, throw what they can at Chris Paul this offseason. So the Bucks have a lot of work to do and they're going to have to probably win the entire thing and uh, to get Giannis to stay. So the Bucks have a lot of pressure on their backs. Um, Yeah, for the Miami Heat, it's going to be really tough to beat that Miami Heat team when they have Jimmy Butler, Goran Dragic, and Bam Adebayo all clicking. And to go along with that, if Jay Crowder's putting up 15-plus points a game, it's going to be pretty dang hard to beat that team. 
One more thing I'd like to add about the Bucks series. I mean, I'm not really surprised, but Mike Boldenholzer, I feel like some of the blame has to be on him because if you remember, um, back in like 2014, 2015, Mike Boldenholzer was the head coach of the uh, Atlanta Hawks, and they were the one seed for multiple years with Al Horford in his prime, Jeff Teague in his prime, Josh Smith, Kyle Korver. That was a really good team, that big four. They were all all-stars, but they never made it out of the second round. And I wonder if there's a connection there between uh, Michael Budenholder's teams, because I know he won coach of the year during the regular season, but coaching the postseason is different. And he's had great teams. He has a one of the best players in the NBA right now. He has the league MVP, and he can't make it out of the second round. So I feel like some of the blame has to be on him. But at the end of the day, some of the players on the Bucks just didn't show up, and that's why they lost. Yeah, definitely. I uh, I thought that there was a possibility that Coach Budenholzer could have gotten maybe fired. He's a great regular season coach, but he hasn't really proved anything in the playoffs. So um, now we're going to move on to the Western Conference. They're the second and final semifinal matchup between the two-seeded Clippers and the three-seeded Denver Nuggets. Obviously, as we all know, most of us are really happy about this. The Denver Nuggets, with the biggest upset of the playoffs, as, as if right now, defeated the Clippers in seven after coming back down 3-1, just like they did versus the Jazz in round one. This was a crazy series. Jamal Murray, like we talked about earlier in the first round, just totally blossomed into a superstar. We know he's going to be an all-star in years to come. He's the future of the NBA. The Clippers, on the other hand, uh, I'd like to talk about Paul George uh, really quick. Paul George uh, is now notorious for choking in the playoffs. He did it last year, couldn't block that game shot. This year, he was given the nickname Pandemic P, PG 13%, because... I'm going to be honest, that was what his shooting splits were looking like. He was shooting 13% basically, and his impact was close to nothing as the Clippers totally choked away the game, and him and Kawhi combined for 22 points uh, in Game 7. Both of them did not show up at all. You can't put all the blame on Kawhi as he pretty much played well in every other game except Game 7, but the Nuggets shined where it was most important, and then Doc Rivers ends up getting fired, and he just signed a five-year deal with the 76ers, so... I, the Nuggets are going to be in the playoffs for the foreseeable future for years to come. Jokic and Murray, great duo. Their pick and roll is almost unstoppable, although the Lakers sort of exploited it. Anyways, what do you guys have to say about this one? Yeah, I mean, we saw this series. I mean, it was ridiculous how big the Clippers choked in the series. I think part of it was coaching error because Doc Rivers didn't make the right substitutions at the right times. But that was because some of his players, including Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, wanted to come out in the middle of the fourth quarter when they were up double digits. And after they came out, the Nuggets would come back and get right back into the game. And they kind of gifted those games to the Nuggets and let them have the 4-3 victory in the series. So, I mean, on the Nuggets part, really great comebacks each and every game from them each all four games that they won they made great comebacks in all four of those games Jamal Murray and Nicole Jokic played very well specifically Jamal Murray who had the playoffs of his life and the Clippers I'm not there's nothing else to say the Clippers completely choked the series uh yeah I couldn't have said it any better than Tyler the Clippers absolutely choked this series they had a commanding win in game one they had what seemed to be a commanding win in game three despite a little uh second half comeback by the Nuggets. And then in games five, six, and seven, if you're going to give up three straight large halftime leads, you deserve to lose the game. The The Nuggets were outscoring the Clippers in the second half of game five, game six, and game seven. And it's not like they were outscoring them by two points. They were outscoring them by 
10, 15 points. It's just unacceptable to lose a series like that. And it's not like the Nuggets are a better team than the Clippers. The Clippers have the talent it takes. They completely choked it. Yeah, the Clippers were the favorites coming into the season. Uh, ESPN did a poll with all their analysts and commanding Clippers uh, winning the championship in the poll. But the Clippers were up, I think, 20 in Game 5, 15 in Game 6, and they were up 12 in Game 7. They choked every single lead for the uh, three games. They have three chances to beat the Nuggets, and the Clippers just couldn't put it together. I mean... Uh, you got to fire someone like Doc Rivers after that. He's choked, I think, three 3-1 three, leads in his career with the Clippers. So, Andrew, what do you have to add? Well, I mean, in terms of the Clippers, you guys kind of summed up the the large leads they blew. You, you just can't, like, yes, I know Doc Rivers has blown uh, three 3-1 three, leads, two with the Clippers, one with the Magic. But I think if you're going to give him a pass on anyone, it's got to be this one. Because the Clippers, in my opinion... After coming back from the NBA restart, they just never looked the same. I mean, Lou Williams played the worst he's ever played as a Los Angeles Clipper. Montres Harrell missed 30 days. I'm not saying that he should have not been there um, because, you know, it was a very personal family reason, but he was never the same from coming back. And Paul George looked like a completely different NBA player than what he was in the regular season because um, when they, I remember one game vividly when they played the Lakers, he dropped like 35 points. And that's the normal Paul George. But now in the playoffs, there's a totally different guy. And I don't think that, I mean, I feel like I could definitely see Doc Rivers getting uh, fired. I just think that at some point the players have to step up and he put, I mean, Kawhi and Paul George, they were out there for pretty much the entire second half. Same thing with Jokic and Murray. I mean, Jokic and Murray were exhausted, especially in that game and especially in the second half of that game seven. And they were just the better duo. I mean, they just played, they played better in the fourth quarter of games five, six and seven. And they just had no answer. I mean, some of the shots Jamal Murray was making, some of the some of those threes and those floaters are just incredible shots, unguardable. But the Clippers just had no answer for him. And I mean, Kawhi Leonard, when it mattered most, uh, he didn't show up, but he did show up the other game. So I think this is this one's mainly on Paul George for not stepping up. And now, if you're the Clippers, you're like, he only has one more uh, year left on his contract, and you gave up five first round picks for Paul George. And in a game seven, he made four field goal attempts. That's less than the amount of first round picks you just gave up to get him. So I don't really know if uh, that ended up being a good trade for the Clippers, but definitely a massive choke job on the Clippers part. All right. And now we're going to cap it off with our final Eastern Conference semifinal matchup between the two seated Raptors versus the three seated Celtics. The Celtics came out on top, winning in seven games, four games to three. Uh, guys, what are your thoughts? What are your opinions on this one? I really personally think the Celtics outplayed the Raptors in the beginning of the series. And in game three, after that incredible OG Ananobi game winning shot, I'm pretty sure there was, correct me if I'm wrong, but under a second, I think it was maybe like 0.3 or 0.4. You can just jump in and tell me if I'm wrong, but that was a really incredible shot. And no offense to that Raptors team. I think they got outplayed in that game. You know, that Celtics team, their young players really turned it around, uh, Jason Tatum and uh, Jalen Brown really showed up, so props to them. I think it would have been pretty funny if the Raptors advanced to the conference finals and Kawhi Leonard, who left them this offseason on the Clippers, was eliminated. I think that would have been pretty comical, but it didn't work out for them. But the Raptors do have a bright future if they can re-sign Fred VanVleet or next offseason even go for uh, Giannis. All right, so... um... Campbell, I think uh, I definitely agree with you that the Celtics, they were the better team throughout the whole series. I think that in the Celtics' minds, they should have been up 3-0. That OG and an OB shot was an incredible shot. That kind of 
gave the Raptors some momentum, who won two out of the next uh, three games uh, in that series. And they ended up forcing in game seven where Jason Tatum played the best game of his life. Um, but both Tatum and Brown, they both averaged uh, more than 20 points in that series. Kemba Walker played much better than he did in the first round, although he still didn't really play up to the uh, superstar uh, level that we've seen him before, like we did in Charlotte. But he's still getting used to the postseason. And the Celtics, I don't think it should have gone seven games. I think that they should have probably won. It looked like they were going to go up 3-0, so maybe they should have won in five or six games. But the Raptors, you know, they they have veterans like Lowry and Van Fleet. So they definitely um, were able to step it up. And that was probably the most exciting. E- either that's that series is pretty exciting. Uh, obviously, the Clippers come back one. But I think that was definitely a really fun series to watch. Um, Yeah, I agree with you guys both that it was a Celtics series. I mean, the Celtics at the end of the day deserve to win. I, I predicted the Raptors would win in seven. But after that OG Ananobi shot, I was like, Come on, the Celtics should be up 3-0 right now. So it was a Celtics series to win from the beginning. So I'm glad they at least didn't get robbed of the series because of one uh, shot that happened with 0.5 seconds left on the clock. So that's all I have to say about it. This series was one of the best series of the postseason. That game three was incredible. OG Ananobi kind of saved the Raptors' postseason hopes, even though they did end up losing. But he prevented them from going down 3-0 that it was a crazy shot, a crazy game. Another great game in the series was game six. It was back and forth in a, uh, in a one and an OT. The Celtics had a chance to close it out multiple times, but didn't. And Kyle Lowry ended up clutching it up for the Raptors and getting them that win. So this series was very back and forth once uh, the Raptors won that game three and uh, went down to two and one. They were able to win and go up two, two, and then, each team won one more from there, and then the uh, Celtics closed it out at the end. So, I mean, this this series was one of the most even series of the postseason. I Either of these teams deserve to win, but I think the Celtics did a great job coming out on top. They almost beat the Heat in the next round, which we will cover in our later podcast. Yeah, the series was great. Kemba Walker wasn't able to play as well as he could have, but Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, and Daniel Tice really did put up a good show, and I think that – we saw Pascal Siakam not play as well as we thought he was going to, but Kyle Lowry, OG Ananobi, Fred Van Vliet played well, but Fred Van Vliet took some bad shots in that game seven, and that definitely helped them lose that game seven uh, against the Celtics and kick themselves out of the postseason and from defending their championship. All right, and that's going to do it for our main segment this episode. So now we're going to move on to the traditional shot clock segment. So... Today's shot clock question is, we decided uh, unanimously that Christian McCaffrey is the best running back in the NFL when healthy, but who is the second best running back in the NFL when healthy, everyone? Andrew, you have 24 seconds on the clock. Who is the second best running back in the NFL when healthy? Ready, set, go. In my opinion, uh, this guy might even be better than Christian McCaffrey when fully when he's fully healthy, and this is Alvin Kamara. I think that he's shown over the past couple years why he might be the best, or if not the best, probably the second best running back. He can do it all. I mean, he, you can give him he can take twenty carries a game, but he can also run twenty routes out of the backfield, and he can break so many tackles, and he's so good in space. And you see the lo- the big plays that he gets, and he he can really just do it all. And that's why I think he's almost as good, or if not better, than McCaffrey. All right, definitely a good point. Alvin Kamara, great running back in the NFL. All right, Campbell, you are on the clock. 24 seconds on the clock, starting now. 
All right. So uh, the second best running back in the league, I'm going to have Saquon Barkley. It might sound a little biased, but the Giants are terrible, so it's not. Saquon in his rookie season was really, really phenomenal. Uh, his second season, he was great except for those three games he missed. And this season, he tore his ACL, I think, in uh, game two, which is really too bad. I think he's going to be even better if the Giants can get in good offensive line, and he's just a super explosive player. As we all know, Saquon's one of the NFL's most elite running backs, so great choice there. Tyler, you have 24 seconds. Ready, set, go. Okay, so I think the second best running back in the NFL is Ezekiel Elliott of the Cowboys. Although he does do the eat sign when he gets a four-yard gain on a third and 20, he is the definition of a ground-and-pound running back. He will get yards and touchdowns for you every game. You can rely on him. Dak Prescott almost gives the ball to him on almost two downs every single drive. Uh, So he's just a great player and a great running back, and you can always rely on him. Zeke is obviously a great running back, even though I hate the Cowboys. Zeke is still really good. Okay, Dean, 24 seconds on the clock, starting now. All right, so I'm going to have to agree with Andrew here. I'm going to go with the second best running back in the NFL is Alvin Kamara. He is just so good out of the backfield, like Andrew mentioned. This year, right now, he is top five in receiving yards. And like Andrew said, he can get 20 carries or he can catch like... five 40-yard passes out of the backfield. He's an amazing catcher, probably second to Christian McCaffrey, and he can always break so many tackles, and he is so quick on his feet, and he's amazing when he's healthy. So that's why I'm going to go with Alvin Kamara as my second-best running back. And that'll do it for today's episode. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and the platform you're listening on today at AT Buzzer Podcast. I'm Dean McCollum, along with Andrew Lubliner, Campbell Klein, and Tyler Fertel. This has been At The Buzzer. See you next week.